welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. All right, we're going. Javon, good morning. Welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast. Hey, good morning, Thomas. Thanks for having me, man. Love the name, by the way. Nice, thanks. I can't take credit. I, I, uh, I just someone suggested it, and then I, I kept it. I kept it in the back of my mind for a few years. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that. Whoever it was, man, they're good at they're good at marketing and stuff for sure. Yeah, cool name. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, dude. <laughs> awesome. So, Javon, uh, at the beginning of the pods, I always like to bring it back and kind of hear about people's early influences and you know where they came from. So. I know you're in Houston right now. Did you grow up in uh, Texas Texas as well? No, man. I actually grew up in Rochester, New York, upstate New York. Oh, cool. Um, so I've I've been around. <laughs> I've moved from <laughs> Rochester to Atlanta to the, the DMV area. Um, I've lived overseas. Well, not lived overseas, but I was deployed overseas um, to Kuwait, Afghanistan, back to D.C. I've been all over the place, man. Just finally wow. decided I wanted to settle in. Came here to Houston, Texas about a year and a half ago. Awesome, man. So in the in the Mideast, were you with the uh, uh, armed forces? Yep. Yep. I was with the uh, the Army. So I did uh, 12 years in reserves. Four of those were active. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for your service. That's awesome. Oh, thanks for the support, man. Appreciate you. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So upstate New York, so, cause I, I'm kind of, um, I love music and I love hip hop too. And actually mm-hmm. I've been re- recently been listening to Talib Kweli and, and Questlove both have podcasts where like they go deep on kind of like, they're both East coast guys, but, you know, musical history and musical influences. So in upstate New York, would you be getting the same kind of musical influences coming from the city or was it a different kind of vibe up there? No, we, we definitely get that influence. And actually, um, one of my brothers, he's a, he's a, a huge musician. Um, his name is Riggs. He has this, the group, The Cloth. And if you like that type of hip hop, he's actually still rapping that way. You know, right now, oh, cool. it seems like everyone sounds the same a little bit, but you know, he still has that old school New York feel to him. So that's the person you might want to check out too, Thomas. Nice, for sure. I will. Yeah, I just think it's so it's interesting to because I feel like the music that we grew up with influences us somehow, you know, whether it be subconscious or for people like your brother, maybe much more intentional. Yeah, influ- I mean, for sure, you get influenced by so many different ways. You know, you have the societal influences, you have the uh, the parental or the guardianship influences, you know, you have your friends, family, your different social groups. So, or like you said, whether you know it or not, you're getting all this information and all these, you know, ideologies and, and um, beliefs, you know, being shaped by all these different sources. For sure, man. So, so nowadays you're on the mindset message to to summarize it uh succinctly and uh, from what i read about your bio it seems like you had a shift or a moment when you decided to take a more active control of your life and your direction Mm -hmm. and and that was a very positive experience and now you're motivated to to share it so can you build us a, a backstory there as far as what was going on in your life at that point and what what happened yeah. yeah, for sure, man. For sure. Good question. Um, and speaking of influences, um, I come from a very impoverished area um, in Rochester, New York. Um, you know, grew up, we didn't have money, um, any of that, raised on food stamps. Um, and, you know, my mother was just trying to make a way. So I actually was raised in a, a polygamous household where my mom was wife number two of two. And then um, her husband had another mm-hmm. wife and family on the other side. So as you can imagine, um, that impacts one, love, um, and then two, uh, being a young man, trying to identify, you know, what that meant, um, what being a man meant, et cetera. Um, so my views were kind of skewed by that um, in just the environment. So I would say that before I got on this mindset journey, um, I wasn't being shaped by my efforts. I was being shaped by my environment, um, which unfortunately many of us 
um, have that experience. And it takes some type of aha moment or wake up call for you to kind of change that and, and see what your, your third eye or your mind. Um, so at 17, you know, I tried to take matters into my own hands. I was really tired of having, you know, two pairs of shoes for the school year, a couple pair of jeans and, and maybe five, six shirts for the year. So I, I was like, hey, I'm gonna get money. I started working. I had always had a, a job, but we know you're not getting paid much as a as a 15, yeah. 16 year old. Right. <laughs> you know, you get you know, the chump change. Um, and I hit the streets uh, and I ended up getting caught up and I got arrested. Uh, for an assault and robbery charge at 17. And when I got arrested, I didn't realize the gravity of that situation. Um, you know, I'm sitting in there, I'm like, ah, whatever. You know, even even when a judge told me what I was facing, uh, which was seven years in prison with the big boys, uh, right? Mm. I was being charged as an adult. It didn't hit me until my mom and my older sister came to visit me uh, one day. And this was like after a few weeks of being in there. Uh, in jail. And just seeing that the the pain that I had caused here was two people who really were my world. Um, they really were the, the only reasons, you know, that I, I cared was my family. Um, so that woke me up. And that was when I finally, you know, just had a prayer moment with God that I actually meant, you know, I was praying. I grew up in an Islamic family. Um, so you pray five times a day, but I didn't mean any of that. I didn't mean anything I said. I was just doing it because that's what I was told I had to do. Right. Um, but this time when I went back to my cell after that visit, I got on my hands and my knees and I meant every single word when I asked him to just help me out of this situation. And I told him that I would be a, a servant for him if he just got me out. And of course, at 17, you don't know what that means. Right. I don't know what resources I had because I thought money was everything. Um, and that, over the years, I realized that it wasn't because by the grace of God, I didn't have to do seven years, you know, which is why I'm, I'm here talking to you today. Um, so that was really my wake up call to the power of mindset and the power of belief. Um, just seeing that, you know, there is a higher power that can help you out, but you have to do your part, too, um, is the real key. Amazing. Wow. What a story. That's so yeah, cool, thanks. man. Thank yeah, you, incredible. You. Okay, there's a, f- there's a few things I'd love to, to learn more about there. So going back to the the household growing up, the polygamous household, mm-hmm. pretty interesting. And it seems like looking back, you don't have a great impression of it or it's not a lifestyle you would you would choose for yourself perhaps. Like I sense some like, right. like not uh, judgmental, but a little bit like, yeah, I saw that and it wasn't. It wasn't that chill. So what? What about that? <laughs> right, right. What, what about that? Kind of didn't work for you. <laughs> um, I think for me, uh, maybe you know, some people make it work because it's more, uh, it, it's more, it's more well explained and more well planned, I guess. Um, but for me, you know, I kind of I looked at it in a way where. I felt like my mom kind of was like giving up um, and she was just tired. Um, and that's why I, I kind of felt like a settle there. Um, you know, as a kid, that's how I was looking at it because here it was, you know, the woman, you know, my first love is my mother. Um, and just seeing her, you know, I, I, of course she thinks she's the most beautiful woman and, you know, the strongest woman and she's done so much. And when you see that, um, it's just like, what caused that would cause her to just want to be, you know, another one. Um, and that's how I was feeling at that time. And I actually had um, a conversation with my mother a few years ago about why, you know, the whole reason. And that really was it. She was just like, hey, I, at that time, I really needed help. Right. I did not want y'all to end up in the streets. I didn't want us to end up homeless. Um, I was tired of dealing with men who were cheating, who were beating me, who were doing all these other things. And here it was this man. I knew what he was doing. You know, I knew he had another family, um, but I also knew that he would um, take care of us. And I would not have to worry about him laying hands. I would not have to worry about him mistreating us. Um, so that's what it was. And that was probably maybe about five years that I had that discussion. So it was an interesting um, perspective shift. Um, and 
I would say, you know, to each his own, really. Like if that works for some people, cool. But just make sure that the children understand what that is and what that means um, and really plan to have it where they're receiving the love and the care and attention that's required of a family. Because when you have to split that time, or, or it's really tough to give them that attention and let them know, you know, why that is. Be transparent about the whole situation um, as much as you can. Um, so that's what I would say with that. Nice. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Thank that's you. a brave conversation to have with with your mom. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, you know, those those tough conversations really help build relationships. Um, a lot of people tend to avoid those but those really are the ones that that fortify the relationships. I feel. I feel like the the ones that you know you feel a little weird, you know, bringing it up. Uh, those are the ones that really say, you know, we're not just on the surface here with this. This is deeper, and we're building this connection where there are no secrets here. There are no reasons why we need to hide who we are. Um, we're really talking about you know, the essence of us, the essence of our being, why we make certain decisions. Um, I think it's just very important to have those conversations, uh, no matter what level a relationship is. You know, if you have a question, if you have a feeling, if something, you know, just didn't align with it, you let people know because you never know what that conversation may lead to. Totally. And I've observed too, that if you're having that, if someone's having that feeling or the hesitation, and they push through it, they're probably the, one of the very few people on this earth who will have that tough conversation with that other individual. Right. It's so valuable. It, right. Right. And you really learn um, not just about the other person, but about yourself um, in those types of conversations. You know, like you said, a lot of people will avoid that and they'll be like, what? I don't want to talk about that. Or, you know, why are you asking me to try to shift the conversation? Um, so I, I gave my mother kudos. You know, as I said earlier, she's one of the strongest uh, people I knew. Um, and she's always been willing to to have that type of conversation. It was just up to me to ask. And it took me a while to really, I was like, do I really want to know this? Right. Do I really want to hear this? <laughs> you know, you got to ask yourself that. To be honest, like, you know, it sounds good when you're thinking about it. Like, man, I want to ask her this. But then you start thinking like, hmm, do I want to hear this story? Yeah. Um, and do I want to bring that up for her? Because it could be a pain point. But it was something that mm. I felt was necessary in my growth as a as a person. Um, so I was so glad that she was willing to sit down and speak with me about it. And there were other things she had to speak about with me, too, because my last name is Wooden. And I'm the only Wooden in my family. Now, <laughs> I'll tell you this story. <laughs> I have a lot of stories, for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I am actually... So my mother named me after a guy, um, you know, and his name was Sam Wooden. My middle name is Sam. Yeah. And this guy came to see me while I was at my aunt's house. I used to go over there a lot, you know, that my, she was the mother to my favorite cousin and I was there and he came, it had to be like 11 o'clock at night, man. I don't even know what time I was young. You know, I see dark. I just think it's late. <laughs> so I had to be like nine, eight, nine or somewhere around that age. And here's this guy and my aunt lets him in. So I'm like, okay, this guy's cool, you know? And he sits on the couch with me. He says, hey, I'm your dad. And I'm looking at him. Oh. Now, mind you, I didn't know who my father was. Like, there's no name on my birth certificate. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I didn't I didn't know. So I'm like, you're my dad. And I'm looking at this guy. I'm like, I know biologically, you know, people look different. You can't tell by that. But as a kid, mm -hmm. you're like, okay, you're tall. Why am I short? Give me some of your height. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, so I'm just looking at him like, well, why the heck didn't I get some of your features? What the heck is going on? And the next day, I go over his house. I'm like, okay, maybe he is my dad. My mom's letting me go. My aunt's letting me go. Cool. And I go there, and I remember it vividly. I was playing chess on a Nintendo. He had other kids running around. You know, I was like, okay, cool. So this is my dad. This is great. You know, I was happy. Never seen the guy ever again. <laughs> never seen him again after that. What? Uh, nope. Never seen him again. Never seen him again. And a couple years after that, I was probably about 13 or 14. I had asked my mother, um, you know, what? who was that? You know, because I, I never seen him. What happened to him? Um, and why is my last name Wooden? And she said words, which is 
probably played into me struggling to ask her the question I asked her before. I asked her like, who, why is my last name? Wouldn't, who was that? Or who's my father? And she was like, well, there was a mistake. Right. But as a kid, when you hear that, you're like, okay, does that mean I'm a mistake? So I carried that with me. You know, I know she didn't mean that. And she didn't remember even saying that um, when I asked her, you know, as an adult. Um, And those are those, those, moments you have to be mindful as a as a parent or as someone who's getting asked that question. Um now of course she didn't mean it, she didn't think anything of it. But that I carried with me for years. Um the fact that she said it was a mistake. Uh, and that's why I said like when you have those conversations, you gotta ask like, am I ready for whatever the response is? Uh, so because it could be something like that and there's ambiguity there. And you can interpret it, though, you know, especially as a young man, as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so you have to be mindful of that. Uh, But, you know, later on in that same conversation, when I asked her about being in a polygamous uh, relationship, um, she we we talked about this and she was saying, again, she just didn't know what to do. There's no manual to being a parent. Um, So she was trying to do literally everything she could. Uh, You know, she wasn't thinking about how that can affect me later. She was thinking about the situation she was in then. Um, so she was literally just trying to get some help. So she told this guy that he was my dad, told uh, told him like, hey, he needs to go see me and all this other stuff. He's been gone long enough. All these things. So that's how he ended up showing up into my life. Um, so which, but what was he... He was that or not? He is not. He is not my father. Oh, um, yeah, nice. he's not my father. Um, so I'm named after this guy. He's not my what dad. Move is that? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I said. I said, "Mom, you have done some interesting things." But you know, my mom was, you know, she literally would sacrifice anything for her kids. Um, yeah. And later, you know, as I come to find out, of course, I was upset with her um, because right. that has scarred me for life. You know, up until this point, up until I got uh-huh. to the point where I could you know, get over some of these things. Um, but my father actually, another story is about to come, by the way. So people <laughs> strap in. <laughs> awesome. so, <laughs> so my father is actually the father of my oldest sister, Chandra. So that's actually my dad too. Um, now he says he's taking a DNA test at some point, but he wasn't there anyway. So it doesn't really matter. Um, but he's actually in prison for a triple murder. So, Interesting story here is when I was looking to establish a relationship with him, he was he was in Florida. And he had moved back to Rochester. Um, so I was like, OK, I want to establish a relationship with this guy. And I had seen him a couple of times, didn't really think anything of him being my father. I just would go with my sister whenever she would go. And I pick him up. And when I picked him up, it's like, OK, we're going to spend a day together. Right. And this is after I got out of the jail. And they had still put me on probation. So I had six months that I had to have be good or else I had to do my time and all this other stuff. Um, so we pull up to a gas station, stop at a gas station. I'm like, I need to fill up. SWAT team hops out and they're like, get on the ground. I'm like, what the? I didn't do anything. I thought I violated oh, probation somehow. Yeah. But I look under the car and I look at him and we, <laughs> we lock eyes. And he must he knew what, what was happening because he just yeah. shook his head, right? He just oh. shook his head and I'm like, what did I do? And they're like, we don't want you. We want him. And I'm like, what the heck? And they take me in to interrogate me. And now this was talk about a painful moment, man. I'm getting interrogated by the uh by the cops. And they're like, what do you know about this guy? You know, we've been watching him for a while for this murder, and they're like, this and that. And I'm like, you know more than I know. Right. And this is supposed to be my father. Now, imagine having to tell them that. Right. So you're, oh, you know, that, of course, I'm like, I'm that's tough in pain. Right. And every time I would try to speak to him on the phone or go see him, I would cry. I couldn't I could never get over that moment. man. it stuck with me for years up until probably about five years ago where I could finally speak to him. And. Uh, we had this conversation. This is something I've been doing in, in my healing journey is having conversations with people I felt have impacted me in some way, shape or form. Um, and when I asked him why, you know, where he was and what was going on, he pretty much said, hey, I just couldn't do it anymore. Right. <laughs> like he was blaming everyone else for what was going on. 
And that says a lot of person about a person's character when they can't take accountability for what's going on. So, um, you know, that conversation was good for me, but it also said, all right, I know what I don't want to do. I know what I don't need to do. Um, so in, in that, it made me realize like all the people I've heard or caused uh, trauma to or caused discomfort to, I went back and just spoke to as many of them as I could to say, Hey, I apologize on my journey of healing. I may have hurt you. Right. And if I did, you know, I want to apologize for that. Right? Here I am now in a better space. So I just want to talk to you to those who are willing to speak with me. Right. So um, that was just a part of my process. And that may help some people, some of the listeners who are listening to say, have those tough conversations, right? That's been the theme of all this is have those tough conversations with as many people as you can before it's too late, because you really want to um, identify who you are, identify what um, could have been your triggers or your traumas. Um, and really that's a, a good part of your healing process is to just learn, learn about those people, apologize to people, you know, take accountability for your part in whatever has taken place. Um, I think once you can do that, that will allow you to move forward. So you're not staying in those spaces, wondering and, and thinking of the what ifs and all those other things, because you can't move forward if you're stuck in the past. Totally. Amazing stories, man. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And that, pleasure, brother. yeah, there's a lot. So I guess to go back to your brush with the system, when you had so you're in jail. You hadn't been sentenced yet. Mm-hmm. You were looking at those seven years. What happened with that situation? Did you end up taking a plea, or how did that how did that get resolved? Yeah. So good question, man. So it got resolved. So really, the only thing that saved my butt, and again, God, but the victims had never showed. They never showed. I, I had, uh, I think, I had like four court dates, and the prosecutors, of course, we've seen cases where they just keep you locked up. Right. No matter what's going on. Um, unfortunately, Khalif Browder, if you're familiar with that. Right. He, he was locked up in Rikers for like years um, and there was no evidence, no anything. And unfortunately, he took his own life after he got out. He just couldn't bear the pain. But uh, I was I was fortunate. Um, the prosecution dropped the case after that. Um, they were just like, hey, we're going to put you on probation. You have six months. If you do anything, you're going to do this whole time. Um, so just the, the victims not showing really saved me. And that was it. Wow. And then fast forward to situation where you're on the floor, you look over at your dad and then you're in, these guys are, I assume there are men interrogating mm-hmm. you. And yeah, it's just interesting, man. Cause you navigated your way through the situations and you know, went on to build a successful life, but there are so many kind of horror stories about, the criminal justice system right. and also the, the conversation about systemic racism within the system. Right. So it's just interesting to hear you, you know, you were able to navigate it and I'm so happy, you know, but I guess after having, you know, with all of those factors, you know, that conversation about the criminal justice system, is that something that you're kind of inspired to um, be an activist around for, for, for say, perhaps, is that a good word for it? Or is that something that, you know, you're and that's not your your area where you're gonna um that not where your passion lies, for example, because you have, there are other areas where you're more motivated. Oh, I'm definitely passionate about it, man. Um so there's a few organizations I've been doing some work with. Uh and one of the things I'm looking to do now, um, now that the, my business is growing into the the space where, you know, it's starting to get noticed is go into the prison systems and, and speak to to the uh, the prison population uh, and just, you know, to to reintegrate for those that do get that opportunity is very tough. It's a it's a tough thing. It's not easy. Um, and a lot of people, especially um, you, you've done 10, 20 years of your life. That becomes what, you know. Uh, so I've coached a, a few people who've done like 20 plus years. I do that pro bono. Um, so if anyone knows anyone who's been in that situation, who's done, you know, that type of time and they're awesome. looking to reintegrate, I send them my way. Right. I, I don't charge them for any of the coaching sessions because I know how tough that is. And on uh, really that reintegration takes place 
You know, I'm familiar with that because of my time in the military, right? Coming from a deployment, it's the same type of process. You know, institutions, when you're institutionalized in any way, shape or form, your mind is um, accustomed to a certain style of life. You're accustomed to rules, regulations. You know where you're supposed to be. You know where you're going to eat and all these certain things, right? So to get out of that and come back into society, which is not structured like that, which doesn't just flow, you're not told everything you need to do, um, it's tough. It's very tough. And that's why, you know, when you ask a lot of people who are lifelong criminals or whatever, they say, I'm at home here. The world is hard. The world is scary. Mm -hmm. Here, I got three hots in the cot, right? I know exactly where I'm (laughs) I'm supposed to go, you know? So that mindset, it's a damaged mindset. Um, So that's why I want to get in there more and go to whatever prisons allow me to speak. I'm actually trying to get into the one where my my father is. Um, He's upstate New York, and I want to speak there. So I've um, contacted the chaplain there to see how that works. Um, And they're still dealing with COVID um, in their own way. So I'm looking to identify that. So anyone who's listening, who works uh, with the prisons or, you know, knows a way to get in or knows some prisons that I may be able to speak at, let me know, reach out to me because that would be great. Um, And there's also an organization called the Sentencing Project that I used to do some work with. Um, And when I say used to do where I just would volunteer, um, reach out to different lawyers or whatever I needed to do. And I did that briefly uh, while I was in New York City. Uh, So that was probably I did that for probably about six months or so. But I definitely want to do more of that type of work because it's it's very important, especially in the black community. Um, So many of our our fathers, our brothers, our, you know, our friends have done time in some way, shape or form, unfortunately. Um, and it's, it's just tough. It's, you know, a lot of people say, oh, when you come out, you know, you have this, but it's not that easy. Um, it's not, there's a lot of things, a lot of dynamics that take place when you've done time um, that you need to get over. I mean, you don't know what's okay. happened to them while they were in there either. So, uh, yeah, I definitely, I'm definitely passionate about that. That's awesome, man. I, I am becoming more too, the more I educate myself and learn. And I've been thinking about ways to get involved. Yeah. And that seems like a good one because it affects so much of people's lives. You know, you disenfranchised, harder to get a job, you know, every job application you have to fill out a form. And there's, so there's like the external nuts and bolts things that impact access to resources. And then also internally, as far as the, yeah, like the psychological challenges of reintegrating and also the way that people are treated in society. Right. But, but cool, man. Yeah. And this to bring it back again, I think what we were talking about as far as kids and what I've been reading and listening to, it seems like I just read this great book about the inner child and how it affects actually specific to like um, Mm -hmm. porn and sex addictions. Mm -hmm. I had a guy on a a, a a psychiatrist, psychologist, and it, it seems to be that kids whenever something adverse happens, the only thing, or the, the, the paradigm they look at it through is, oh, it must have been something that I did wrong or there's something right. wrong with me. Therefore, this adverse situation happened. So, yeah, I think that's a great lesson for parents and, and future parents about it's hard. It's and it's hard too. I can imagine like every day of the, of the year, you know, it's hard to like remember that filter and not say the wrong thing, but it does. Yes. It sticks with us, right? These situations and things that are said. Yep. And that's that inner child. I'm glad you brought that up, Thomas, because uh, I, I speak a lot about inner child healing. Now, I've been learning more about it as I've gone through my own healing process. Um, and when you when you think about it, it sounds weird, right? People are like, inner child, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, but a lot of what we go through is actually from back then, like you were saying, like that yep. filter. Um the the influences like when we first started the conversation, all the influences you get, um, the way you believe, the way you look at yourself, those things come into play. You know, if someone once told you, "Hey, you'll never amount to anything." What's the f- one thing you hear a lot of people say? Like, some my teacher told me this. You know, that's because that sticks in your mind, and it's really hard to change that if people authoritative. Uh, figures, your parents, your guardians have told you these negative things. Like for me, like when my mom said it was a mistake, I took it and I filtered it into what I thought she meant. Right. So that's why I think it's so important to go back to your inner child and be like, hey, 
Uh, we're good now. We're strong. We can make our own choices and, and have those conversations because and then to go back and have those conversations with those people, if you can, because that allows you to take back some of that power for yourself. It allows you to say, hey, I am an adult. I am in control. I have agency over my life now. I will not let this thing that's taken place back then control me. Um, and it's the same thing with traumatic experiences. You know, um, we oftentimes forget about any of those things. It just glosses over it. We don't realize that that was trauma. You know, the, the term trauma is just now becoming a thing, especially in the black community. Um, we're just start now starting to understand that PTSD is not just for the military. It is for anyone, right? Anyone who's gone through these traumatic phases. And especially for men, a lot of times we're told to just suck it up. Um, and unfortunately for like sexual trauma victims, you know, a lot of people don't believe them. Um, if it's someone that they were close to in the household or their family member, people get upset with them and they victim blame. Right. So there's so many of these types of things that take place where healing is hard. Right. Healing is hard. And you start looking at it as your fault. And that's when you start internalizing that thing, internalizing that pain. Like it was something I did. Um, so I can't even blame this person, you know, and then you hold on to that and you carry it through your life. Uh, and then you wonder why your relationships fail. You wonder why you self-sabotage. You wonder why, you know, certain things just happen. You wonder why people end up in jail. It's because of this cyclical process. Um, you're stuck in that. Right. So the only way to change this is to have these conversations and to take action. Um, and for the victim or the person uh, that's going through it, just have that conversation. Find a professional. It may take you a couple of times uh, if you're going through therapy to find the one that really vibes with you and the one that you feel is actually helping you. But don't give up. You have still have life to live. Your life did not end in those situations. You know, um, I know it's tough, but we just have to continue to look for healing. Healing is an ongoing process, especially when you've gone through something um, as detrimental to your mental and emotional well-being as being scarred as a, as a child. But it's don't give up is what I would say. I love it. A message of hope. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's so true about the therapist. I, I'm going through a, a healing process with someone close to me. And as part of it, I was like, go to therapy, ask these questions. And if it doesn't work, go to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is. It's not a guarantee. I actually just, so I, I have um like through my work one session a month, which actually is, is working for me. It's kind of like a check in, mm-hmm. get some stuff to do. But I found this guy as a therapist who's like so matter of the fact. <laughs> and he just, you know, I, I think I've, I've learned that like what works for me is kind of the mirror and this, the, the mirror approach and then a little bit of tough love. And yes. that kind of gives me the kick in the butt that I need. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, basically, thing, I'll yeah. basically go to him with like, Oh, I'm feeling this way. Like I think, and he's like, if you're, if you're asking me, like, you know, it's wrong. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so you found what works for you, but it definitely takes time. And, yeah. and um, a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of different methods to therapy, right? But you have like talk therapy, you have uh, like mind body connection therapy, you know, spiritual therapy. So you really have to find and just play around with the different types of modalities. Like for you, you like that straight up. Like, hey, man, why are you even sitting in my chair talking about this right now? You know what you need to do. You know, you like that. <laughs> for others, they may need a softer approach, you know. So, for sure. you know, just, uh, you know, and that's uh, a couple of questions you can ask. Like, what do you specialize in? Do you specialize in childhood trauma, sexual trauma, whatever you need to start with that and find people who specialize in those and then just drill it down? Maybe there's different types of, um, you know, uh, therapies like rational emotive behavioral therapy, or maybe you need um, acceptance behavior therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, there's so many different types of things, dialectic therapy, you know, so just find drill down after you found out like what issues you're looking to talk about and solve, uh, because that way, you know, there's someone who can not just sympathize, but they can empathize and, and connect with you on that level and allow you to get that space to feel comfortable speaking about these things with them. And another thing is speaking of comfort is the first few sessions, it actually usually takes a while um, for someone to get comfortable in therapy. So 
don't just stop after like the second session. It's going to take you a bit to get to that point. Typically, um, you might just hit it off from the jump, but it usually takes a little while. For sure. Okay, so going back to your intro story, and you went overseas, so you said you went to Kuwait? Kuwait, yep. Kuwait and Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. So how did how did that feel? I guess at that point, were you still practicing Islam? Um, so I, I can't say I was practicing <laughs> like, yeah. um, it was still my faith based, but I can't say I was praying five times a day and, mm-hmm. you know, Ramadan and all that. I would just, you know, it was just my, my foundation, I would say. Okay. So how was like, that? If you looked at my dog tags, it said Islam, but I was not a okay. practicing. You know, to go over to the Muslim part of the world must've been interesting. It how did was, that feel? it was actually, um, uh, a very mind opening experience um, because when you go to the Middle East, you hear about so many different things, especially Afghanistan. You hear about so many different things. And of course, you know, you're in the military, you get mortared every day and all these other things. But outside of that, like when you meet the people, like the actual people who are from there, who are not, you know, the Taliban or in any of that, they are just people trying to survive. Uh, they are so kind um, because Islam is actually a, a religion of peace um, and they are very welcoming into their their spaces. Like if you come to their home, they're going to show you, you know, some meals, some tea, you know, welcome, very welcoming, very um, just just way different than what you, you would hear about. Um, and I knew that being growing up in the, in the faith, but just going there and seeing the country for what it really is. It's actually a beautiful country. Um, they have mountains, they have all different types of terrain. It's like uh, if you went to California, right? If you went up the coast, you see all different types. Afghanistan is very similar to that. So the South is like desert. And then to the West, you have like vegetative States. Um, I had the privilege of being able to travel around the country. Uh, cool. I served as the health information systems officer there. So, just being able to meet different people and they would come on base for like healthcare and stuff like that as part of the hearts and minds. Um, you know, the military would give them healthcare uh, if they had sickly or anything happened to them, um, as exchange for being in those villages because you're building bases in the middle of their village, right? So, um, that was, that was very interesting, um, to just be able to communicate with them on that level and learn from them, like how they were feeling. Um, having those types of conversations with them about everything, about the war, about the military being there, et cetera. Totally. How do you, how did you process things when the, when the U S and allies withdrew last year and now the, the Taliban's back in control? How did that, how did that settle with you? Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, this was something that was, they were processing for years now. Um, so you knew it was coming um, and you seen what happened in Iraq. It's the same thing. Like when we decided to pull out, they were right back in control. And now we went back over there with a a smaller force as trainers and advisors, which is the role we've been in for years, apparently, you know, supposedly. But um, it's it's one of those things where as someone who's served there and definitely more for, you know, most who've lost, you know, lives, lost limbs, um, family members, et cetera, it's. Definitely one of those feelings like that was that for nothing. But then you have to remember that it was never meant to be a, a forever a permanent thing. Right. Yeah. And and the longer we stayed over there, like it was just a bandaid. There was no way to fix that. You can't change beliefs like that. You can't. Now, and the more you stay there. It's just going, it's just building in the back end. Like, you know, they, we was talking about Al Qaeda being on the low. They were just waiting. There was just a waiting game, right? Um, and they were just like, hey, we're going to take control as soon as you leave, right? as you see. Uh, and as we were there, all they were doing was brainwashing more and more people to say, hey, you see what they're doing to our country, this and that, right? So it was, it was a, a lose lose as soon as we went over there. Um, and that's typically how it is for war. As soon as you occupy uh, a foreign land, you have to be ready for that where you say, yeah, we're going to do what we can and, and help as many people as we can. But 
at some point you have to leave because we have our own soil to protect and we have our own issues here. Um, and the wars are expensive, are super expensive. So at some point you, you have to cut that and say, okay, what did we make any change? And the answer when I look back to it is I can't really say that we did. I can't, I can't say that we did. Totally. Yeah. It's, and I mean, even if <clears throat> looking at the Russian invasion, like even if Russia takes over Ukraine, they'll always have to be looking over their shoulders because the Ukrainian people will never accept mm-hmm. that occupation, right? They're not going to stop fighting or, right. Right. you know, do if, even if it becomes like guerrilla warfare, you know, that, exactly. Control. You get militias and all these other things that come up, come about. Um, and then it becomes really tough. But now the battle we were facing, like, okay, who's the enemy? And you don't know until they shoot at you. Right. Um, and that's, that's really the hardest part of it because you don't know who the enemy is. Uh, you're walking through a village, you know, everybody has AKs, even little kids, you know, you're like, okay. Um, so <laughs> when we first went over there, it's like, okay, um, you just shoot anybody you feel is threatened, but then you have to have rules of engagement. And with the rules of engagement, you know, everyone's walking around with these weapons. So there was a thing about hard target, soft target. So a soft target, someone is their weapon is down. Hard target, they're actually looking at point at you. Um, and even as a hard target, you still can't, just shoot them, right? You still can't, you have to wait for them to take action. And now you imagine that you're walking through villages and all these people are looking at you. You're like, okay, who's, who's next, right? Um, who's going to be the, the person that fires? Um, so you don't really know. So that's, that's probably more, uh, more nerve wracking than the actual, you know, getting into it because you're like, okay, I don't know where this threat is coming from. Um, and as you're walking, it could be IEDs that they could detonate anything, a piece of trash. Like, so when you come back again, that reintegration, when you come back after all of that, um, you know, I'm what you call hypervigilant. So if I walk outside, I'm looking up, I'm looking around, you know, I'm making sure people aren't looking out the windows still. And that's the thing that, you know, you have to work on. Um, and, you know, you go, if I go to a restaurant, I'm automatically looking for the egress points or, you know, subconsciously I'm, I'm sizing everybody up to see who will be the largest threat, you know, stuff like that. And that's really what takes a lot of time to work through um, when you go into situations like that. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, man. You can do whole case studies on these things. For yeah. Sure. People do. So what's that acronym egress, an exit of some sort or? Yeah. Yeah. Like the exits, the uh, egress points, like where you can leave, like if something took place, like where would you go? Like how was the fastest way out of there um, to get you, get to safety? Um, especially if I'm with like family or something like that. Um, I just look really? for those points. Um, so it's just a thing that sticks with you. Uh, and yeah. you can look to control it to a certain extent, but, one of those things that it, it really does become a part of you, no matter I'm a mindset coach, but it's still something that subconsciously I'm doing, right? I'm looking or uh, all around walking my dogs. I'm looking up like if it's an apartment building, I look at all, all the floors, see who's up, see if there's balconies, any windows open, you know, I'm doing all of that stuff. And then when I first came home, it was like, you see some trash on the side, you, you walk around, you know, you yeah, like go, around, you bubble out because, and then like, if you come, you know, in the military, they teach you if you're pie in a corner, like you come around the corner, you go out a little bit so you can see. Mm. Um, because when you clear in a corner, so you, you have your muzzle, you don't want them to be able to grab your muzzle. So you kind of stick out from the wall a little bit so you can see. Because if you're too close, either they can get you here and plus you don't have that viewpoint, right, that vantage point. So they see you coming around before you can see them. So there's a lot of things you just think about um, yeah. you know, when you come back through the military, back into yeah, society. Man. Like, cause on one hand, it's like, that's useful, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're not going to be caught surprised and right. obviously like you're going to protect your family really effectively, mm-hmm. but also that's not, maybe you don't want that level of awareness <laughs> right. all the time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> right. That's it, man. Cause you're like, why the heck I am? I'm good. Like there's nothing yeah. happening. Right. <laughs> and you're like, I'm sitting here like pine corners and stuff. And they're like, <laughs> What are you doing? <laughs> it's like, you know, you just think you have to stop and think like, all right, man, I, I want to, I need to chill. Like, I don't need to, yeah. I'm just walking in the neighborhood, right? Like, so 
but yeah, it's it's one of those things that it it can get tiring because you don't want to be heightened all the time. Right? You're just looking around, you're you're paranoid really, um, to yeah. a level that's just unhealthy. Um, so you want to bring that down, and through therapy, you get it to a point where it's better. But it again, it's it's sticking with you, right? It's in the subconscious mind, so um, it takes like yeah. a conscious effort to pay attention to those things. Cool, man. So that gets to the point of because again, on like the masculinity topic, physical mm-hmm. power and mm-hmm. how to safely navigate the world as men and a powerful men, like physically in the sense of, you know, we are, you're you know, trained, but even mm-hmm. if someone's not trained, if, if they're just a man, you know, at that point they, they have the ability to, you know, physically overpower other people. And, you know, that can be used kind of like Peter Parker, like great power, great responsibility. Right. And that, right. that can be a positive a force or it can be a negative force. So, <clears throat> how do you approach that in your personal life? And, you know, how do you kind of, and this is something that could help the men out there who are listening, you know, navigate the world with that space and use it as a way to help other people feel safe and also mm-hmm. hold space for other people and understand that it could be triggering for them or, you know, they could have been abused or hurt by men previously. Right. Right. And that's a, that's a great point, man. Like you never know what someone has gone through and what you remind them of. Um, so I always say like, serve with it from a place of compassion, like come from a place where you, where you look to understand before you jump to your, your conclusions about someone, you know, look to understand them a little bit more on a deeper level. Um, see if you can ask some questions just to, you know, learn more about them, uh, before you judge them, before you just put those preconceived notions or label them, um, in your own right. Uh, because sometimes people, act uh, defensively and they may not even know that they developed this defense mechanism. It's just a way to keep them safe. So, um, you know, none of us are perfect and we all have our own ways that we do that, that we protect ourselves, so to speak. So have those, have those conversations um, and, you know, start where that person is like, don't treat them how you want to be treated, treat them how they want to be treated. Um, so it's better to just talk about these things. It's better. And if they don't want to, don't force it. Right. Don't don't make your agenda theirs because mm-hmm. you need to know like what matters to them, who they are and serve them from that that perspective. Um, and a lot of times as men, we get upset because we're like, I want I need to know this. I want to talk about this, you know, <laughs> because we're like, you know, we're we're want to be a dominant force. Um, but that can can really hurt people in ways we don't understand. Like you were saying, like they could have been traumatized by a man that looks like you, um, but you don't know that. So when you're hawking and you're yelling at them, they may shrink and they may be trying to protect themselves because you're taking them back into that space. So you have to be really mindful of that, um, that you don't know everyone's story. Um, so when they act weird to you, it may be because something has transpired in their lives and they're just not comfortable anymore. So, You don't have to shrink who you are, but just be a person who's understanding. Don't always look to be, you know, the authority. Listen, listen um, and don't listen to respond. Listen to understand what this person is coming. Listen to the things that are not being said, uh, because that's where a lot of the information lies. Right. Someone could be saying one thing, but their body language could be saying something completely different. And that's what we have to start paying attention to. Uh, you know, before that person is finished, a lot of times we're forming our sentence <laughs> um, and that's just not where we need to be. We need to be in a place where let that person finish. And you can say mm-hmm, like, you notice I'll say, uh huh. Yeah, right. Right. That's just showing that I'm, I'm paying attention, acknowledging. But, you know, just acknowledge that person. Show respect. Show that what they say matters. Watch your posture. Um, don't always be in a position, a power posture, as they call it, like where you have your arms crossed and stuff like that. Look that person in the eye, you know, ask them um, if it's uh, your partner or someone, family member, if they need support or something's going on, ask them how do you can be of support. Don't assume that they want you to solve the issue um, because a lot of men do that. Right. We want to be problem yeah. solvers, but we can't <laughs> assume that that's what's needed. That's what's required. Sometimes it's just listening, letting them vent and they work through the problem. So 
Um, there's a lot of lot of things. This could be a whole topic in itself, brother, um, because there's so much about communication and doing it effectively that comes into play here. Uh, because most of us are not taught that we're not taught how to communicate on a level where we are coming from a place of understanding and empathy. We're just taught, hey, get your point across, all right? Be authoritative, uh, be assertive. Uh, when that's not necessarily the case, it's not what's needed in all conversations. Totally. I'm not sure where I heard it, but since I've started the podcast, I heard this great line to ask someone, and I use this with with my partner a lot. I ask her, do you want me to listen or do you want me to help problem solve? Exactly. Because that helps me check myself and know which lane to get in and also communicates to her that I'm trying to check myself and not just, you know, right. mansplain, you know, right. Yeah. We're just <laughs> not exactly. be help, try to be helpful, but be annoying. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, man. That's why it's important to do that to level set and be like, Hey, where, what lane do you want me to be in? Um, do you want just support or you do, like you said, do you want me to problem solve or you want me to just listen? Um, is, is a great question. Uh, and then, you know, you can mirror back sometimes to let that person know you're listening to what they're saying and you're just looking to understand. Like, you know, so you can use things like what I heard you say was this. Is that is that right? You know, just to make sure um, that you're listening is the mirror technique, as they like to call it. Um, or you can paraphrase sometimes. And don't do it all the time because that will get annoying. But when you are looking for more <laughs> understanding to verify before you get to a place, right, <laughs> you don't want to become a parent. And you, they're just yeah. like, all right. Are you mocking me? <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I heard you say it was past the chips. Is that right? Right. <laughs> like, man, you heard what I said. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> but, but a lot of times in deeper discussions, that's required because, you know, we get upset before we actually understood what was, what was happening. Because again, we're looking at it from our perspective, but try to see if you can do it from there, you know, understand their point and see what the jewels are in the conversation. Because a lot of times when people are upset, they're not articulating it the way they want to. Um, so that's where it's really, really important to take that breath before you speak. You know, even if you got to take a few minutes. And that's one of the keys is setting boundaries in conversations. Before you get to those points, set those boundaries. Um, so and communicate those with the people like, hey, when, you know, especially if it's your spouse, you say, hey, when when it's a heated discussion, we got to have a way where, you know, we could take a moment if no one's hearing each other. But we say a certain word or something like that, where we know we're not even listening anymore. You know, learn those types of things. So you don't say something you don't want to say. So you don't do something you don't want to do. Right. Learn how to calm yourself. I, I talk with my clients um, a lot about placing an interrupt between your the, the situational uh, response and the emotion and then what you do, right? Because if you have that emotion, if you have that situation or that circumstance take place, you need to be able to respond instead of react because the reaction is what gets us in trouble. When we have that knee jerk reaction and we say something that we didn't want or we did something out of anger, now you can't take that back. And a lot of us get in trouble with that. So mm. you have to be able to take that breath. You have to be able to step away and come back when you're good, whatever it is. But set those boundaries within you and with that that person if you can. For sure, man. And that's hard to do. Yeah, you know, it is. It is. In, One in of the, the best things the you can do is, is a breath, a deep breath in and a deep breath out, because you could do that anywhere. You know, if you just close your eyes before you respond, because anger and in, in, in all these emotions, there is a physical response. So you literally it's literally hard to get upset if you don't let your body start tensing up. And you if you notice like how you respond. So, for instance, your eye may start jumping or your palms may start sweating. You'll notice you'll get a physical reaction typically before you get to that breaking point. So once you start paying attention to that, you got to see your signs. Like You'll know, like, all right, I'm starting to get upset. I got to walk away. All right. I, get, I have to. And if that person is like, no, no, no. Be like, yeah, listen, I'm not this conversation. I can't have it right now. Right. And just go. If you got to just walk off, it's better than doing something that you're going to regret. 
Um, just be like, hey, I had to remove myself from that issue. You know, I noticed my palms was getting sweaty. I noticed my eye was jumping. I noticed I was tearing up, whatever it is. I noticed I started shaking. I was not in a place to listen to you. Um, and it was just going to be bad from there. So, like, pay attention to those those physical responses because anger is a physical emotion. Like, you literally start tensing up. Your muscles get tight because you're just like the fight or flight. Like, your, your, your body is preparing for that battle. So you just have to pay attention to those things, um, and it'll help you. You'll see that it'll help you as you learn how to pay attention to those nuances. Well said, man. Thank you. My pleasure. So we're uh, we're coming up on time, so we'll jump over to the the Spark by Seek Discomfort conversation game here. Before we do that, uh, Javon, I wanted to ask uh, for book recommendations. I'm 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 gonna guess that you're a well-read guy and you have some interesting books to recommend. So, what would you uh, what would you say like top three? Sure, top three. One is "The Obstacle Is the Way" by Ryan Holiday. Um, that is one of my favorite books. Um, speaking on the topics of like trauma um, and things like that, getting over trauma, the body keeps the score. I always forget his name, but the body keeps score. It's a very popular book. And and then what um, what happened to you? is another book by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. Um, that's a fairly recent book. Those would be my top three. Um, and I just got to do my shameless plug. Is yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will say, use, get my book, right? Own Your Kingdom, um, <laughs> How to Control Your Mindset So You Can Control Your Destiny. Uh, and this is, you know, it's not a fluff book. And that's why I would say that it's a book that I, these are tools I use on my journey of healing. So I, I definitely would say it's, a, you know, it's been helping a lot of people. Awesome, dude. Thank you for doing that work. My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay, we'll jump over. Um, do you want to go first or second? I will go. I will go first since I, the pressure. I'm putting the right. pressure. <laughs> oh, man, look at that bravery. <laughs> yes, sir. So, what makes a place feel like home to you? Name three things. Oh, that is a good one. I like this game already, man. So, what <laughs> place makes a place feel at home to me? Is the ability to be myself without judgment. Right. That's one of the things that's very important to me to be able to be authentically you um, and not feel judged. Uh, psychological safety. Uh, number two would be a place that I can learn, a place where I have a space where I am challenged to be my best self and positively. Um, number three would be support. I have support there um, where if I'm having tough day, tough times, um, if my depression or anxiety or something is acting up, I have someone there that can support me and I can speak to them about anything um, and they will not look at me differently. Um, so those will be my top three. Awesome, man. So psychological safety, the ability to learn and grow mm-hmm. and uh, affirming support structure. Yes. Yes, well said. Interesting, man. That's cool. That's cool that they're all well, it's a flexible list, right? Because mm-hmm. there's nothing about physical dimensions at all. Right, right. Yeah, I think um, you know, I think the structure, the physical structure is not important um as far as that for me. Um, because I think physically, you know, you really only need a certain certain things that have comfort, um, but mentally and emotionally, that's where it really feels like home because physical is just a house to me. It's just a place of residence. Awesome. Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. So my question is how have my religious views changed over the years? Yeah, that's cool. Kind of what we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I grew up a uh, Roman Catholic household. So yeah, well, um, my parents both grew up with that religion their parents were pretty devout um, my, my dad's parents still are you know activating uh, practicing Catholics and I would say we grew up going to church pretty often just about every Sunday and my similar to you I never really I can only remember a few times where I like truly you know spoke to God in a, in a time of need um, <laughs> one of them <laughs> <laughs> this says a lot about me. I remember this like clear as day. I was in grade school and I had this huge crush on this girl and I was praying to God. I was like, God, please like just show me a sign. Like, is it on or not? Like, does she love me or no? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it tells you, I think everything you need to know about that me. Is... Like, 
How many of us said that prayer though? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Oh my god, that's so funny. So and but then yeah, I never like I never like um believed, I guess is the word, or it, it never it never resonated with me as far as like the buying into it or feeling aligned with it. And then um we stopped going and and yeah, I think looking back I'm really grateful for the 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 morality uh, at least on paper. You know the the child sex abuse stuff with the Catholic Church has definitely been a turnoff. Um and I, and also as I've gotten older kind of looking at the institution, I feel like it's kind of dogmatic and there's a lot of things about it as far as kind of um telling women what to do with their bodies, not supporting, you know, same-sex love. Those things are kind of hard for me to kind of buy in as far as the institution. But mm-hmm. I think religion in general has such a powerful and positive impact on, on the world. And I think for people to find purpose through it is extremely valuable. Um, so I'm open-minded to it, I would say. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's um, definitely well said, man. And a, a great discussion to have. And, you know, I'm, I'm aligned with you on that. Um, and I, I think that uh, when it comes to religion, I'm, I'm all for people having beliefs, but I just challenge people to really, you know, have their own values and their own um, alignments too, because, you know, it's one of those things like we, we mentioned, we were talking about, um, you know, Islam and the Middle East and all that stuff. And when you think about it, there um, a lot of people use religion for power and control. Um, so you just have to really, you know, question things that you don't understand and, and really have those discussions um, within yourself. Like, OK, what aligns with me? Um, you know, what do I want to learn more of? What do I challenge? What do I not? And just have that within you because, you know, the Taliban and Al Qaeda, you know, KKK, they're all based on religious views, right, that they've skewed to be radical. Um, so it's definitely one of those things we we, we could you know, we just have to have to learn on your own. And that's what I say, too. I'm, I'm just open to learning um, because religion can be beautiful. And it is. Um, it's, you know, explains the unexplainable for a, a lot of us mm-hmm. um, and it gives us purpose. Um, so definitely. Yeah. The other, other thing, too, about the Catholic Church specifically, I could never get behind an institution that intentionally excludes women from leadership. Mm. To me, it's wrong and it's also dumb. No, I actually never even thought about that, that they exclude women from leadership. That, that is, yeah, that's yeah. A, a very great point. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think the current Pope proposed at one point uh, women deacons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as far as the priests and, the, you know, the Pope, imagine that, you know, it's like, yeah. yeah. So, it's, you know, so, uh, and with all this stuff too, I, I kind of also like with, with other white people, you talk about like white community problems, like talking about, privilege and how do we spread the power and kind of like affect positive change. And I use the argument of it's, if it's morally doesn't motivate someone like the, the net positive effects of introducing more people to resources is good for everyone because we have more minds, more talent, more opportunity. And the, the greater good is raised because there is more talent in the, the resource pool, if you will. So yeah. I, I try to also use like a literal uh, persuasion argument with people. If the morality aspect isn't motivating enough for them, then I try to make it more kind of practical. Um, same thing with the a, a institution like the church. It's like if you had women in leadership, you would have such a better perspective on problems and challenges. How do we adapt? How do we stay relevant? So, yeah. Diverse thinking is important in every aspect for sure. Yeah. And we're seeing that even in corporations, right. Or diversity, equity, inclusion, they talk about all the time, but it's just, you know, diverse, diverse thinking breeds innovation and it breeds um, insight that you wouldn't have otherwise. For sure. Awesome. Well, Javon Wooden, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much for sharing openly and, and sharing your wisdom and experiences with us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Thomas. Keep man, you thank you for sharing wisdom to me. You you definitely had this was a great conversation, man. Thanks, dude. Where can the the folks find you or if they're interested to uh, kind of check out your work? 
For sure. They can uh, find me on all social media platforms at Live Not Loathe. That's L-I-V-E-N-O-T-L-O-A-T-H-E. Um, and you can also go to my website, which is LiveNotLoathe.com. Sign up for the daily newsletter. Nice. What's what's with that name, too? That's intentional, I'm sure, yep, the name yep. there. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks for asking. So it's uh, really to symbolize the transformation. Um, a lot of people loathe life or they loathe themselves, which is like hating it. Um, they don't like what's happening in it. Um, and they lose the fact that there is some things they can do to control that. Right. So that's uh, just demonstrating the transformation of it. instead of loathing life and just going through the monotony, um, the things that you just do not enjoy at all. Find a joy in your life and start living again. Um, not just being alive, but actually living, doing things that bring that that joy and that happiness and that fulfillment back to you. Beautiful, man. You're doing the good work. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me once again. For sure. Thanks, Ron. Have a great day, dude. You too, brother.